I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you've brought me up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 30, which along with Psalm 32 are the psalms appointed for today, Sunday, September the 4th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green. I'm your host. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing to look at, at the history of the kings of Israel now. In 1 Kings 12, the first 20 verses of that chapter, we're in James 5, verses 7 to 12 and 19 to 20, and then we're in Mark 15, 33 to 39. So we begin with, remember, um, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who, who was from the tribe of Ephraim, had been promised by a prophet, Adonijah the Shilonite, that he would be the king over all the tribes of Israel except for Judah because of the disobedience of Solomon. <clears throat> the Lord was going to preserve a descendant of David on the throne for Judah because of David, because of his love for David and his covenant for David. And he said, though, that it's not going to be forever that that's true. So it remained at Jerusalem, and the temple is in Jerusalem at this time, and it will be, Jerusalem will be the center of the new creation, but there's not going to be a temple there. It doesn't need it because the presence of the Lord is there. <clears throat> so that that promise, that covenant promise that God made to David will endure throughout all eternity. And Jesus will be the one who sits on that throne. And so here we go. We, we, Solomon has died, and now his son Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. As soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was in Egypt because he was afraid of Solomon. He ran there and fled. And then so when he heard about um, Rehoboam going to Shechem, he returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we'll serve you. And, and the yoke that they're talking about is the forced labor that was required. You remember there was 80-some-odd thousand people who were in the forced labor to uh, handle all the public works projects projects, the, the houses of Solomon and others, the, the, uh, the wall around Jerusalem, the temple, um, all of those structures, the millow, every bit of that. So th- they were forced into labor to do that. And so what they've come to say is, hey, you know, it's kind of like what it was in, in Pharaoh's Egypt. And so, you know what, if you really want to be the king and if you want us to follow you and serve you, then do this. Make our yoke lighter. Give us our freedom, essentially. And he said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. So what does he do? He, he calls in the elders, the ones who had uh, stood before his father and given him counsel while he was alive. And they said, how do you advise me to answer this people? And their response, which was wisdom, is if you'll be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, they'll be your servants forever. They'll follow you. But he abandoned the counsel that the old man gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. Never a good idea. (laughs) I've been a young man. I know that. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put upon us? 
And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. Whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I'll add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, I'll discipline you with scorpions. In other words, it's going to be a lot harder. You're nothing but scum and slaves. That's all I've got for you. I don't respect you. I don't treat you like brothers. I'm not, I'm not going to treat you that way. I'm king and you're not. You know, it, it's interesting, this whole idea of the yoke, because that is exactly the kind of language Jesus used, right? He talked about the heavy yoke that the Pharisees put on the people. He said, my burden is easy and the yoke is light. And, and he, he promised them something exactly different. And so if you can't hear that echo in here, I just decided to help you with it. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as he said, come again the third day. And he answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel the old man had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young man. My father made your yoke heavy. I'll add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I'll discipline you with scorpions. So the king didn't listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Abijah, Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw the king didn't listen to him, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look to your own house, David. You know, it's the same thing that happened in the Absalom revolt, that they turned away from David in this. And then they came back and said, hey, 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 men of Judah, why didn't you, why should you get all the credit and the glory and the honor for bringing David back? We wanted him back as much as you did. And so there's this same thing. And so it's, it's a rejection, not of David, but of the house of David. And so they're, they're separating themselves from Judah. And, and we're going to be told that it's going to be that way, you know, still. So Israel went to their tents and Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. So it's, it's not going to go well, big fella. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So he, he got out of Dodge and went on back to Jerusalem to the fortified city because he was afraid of a revolt, and rightly so. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. Remarkable that we can go from David to Solomon to the consecration of the temple and all these wonderful and beautiful things. People come in from all over the place to, to see his wealth, his splendor, the way it was there, and, and also to see the wisdom that God had given him to nothing, literally, one-twelfth of the kingdom within one generation. Unbelievable. Sad beyond belief and never to, to be reconciled. <clears throat> so that's why we call those others the lost tribes because they, they go up and they take over the northern part of Israel and then ultimately in the 8th century B.C., they're taken into captivity, and we don't hear from them anymore. It's only this tribe of Judah that's persevered down through the ages that can trace their lineage. The Benjamites can some as well, but, but Judah is the only tribe that remained at this point. 
It's in, the, in this gospel lesson, I mean, you talk about the rejection. It's the opposite of the rejection, though, of Rehoboam. Rehoboam said he was going to make the, the yoke harder and heavier, while Jesus promised exactly the opposite, and they reject him. And now it was the sixth hour had come. Remember, it started at the third hour is when they put him on the cross. So we're three hours later. It's noon. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours, it's dark over the land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's from Psalm 22. And so when Jesus quotes that way, what it's intended to do is is call you to go and remember the 22nd Psalm. It's not just the one line all by itself. It's the rest of the psalm that's implied. That's the way that teachers taught. People knew the Word of God so well that you could say something like that. You could make a reference, and then it would be picked up by the people who were familiar with the Word. And so they would know where that came from, and they would know... Oh, okay. And then they would begin to try and recall the 22nd Psalm and see what the context for that was. So here, it's is it Jesus being forsaken by the Father? Well, he's being forsaken by the Father for us. It's our sins that have put him there. In the 22nd Psalm, it, it says things like, I'm a worm and no man. It's, it's not obsequious, though. It, it's, it's confession. It's confession of sin. It, it's the punishment for sin. That's that the weight of sin and the alienation and the separation from God because of sin. And that's exactly what Jesus is experiencing here, but not for his sin, for ours. It's the first and only time in all of history, and I mean a history that predates history, a history that predates the written record we have, the first and only time in all of that all the way stretching back into eternity, that there was a separation between him and the Father and how hideous that must have felt. I mean, if you've had a loved one pass away that was very close to you, you know a little bit of what that feeling is, but the perfect love between the, Jesus and the Father was broken and severed because of our sin. So of all the pain that he felt and endured on the cross, the physical pain, the, the pain of the abuse uh, uh, and the, the things that people were saying, to him this is a million times worse he didn't complain about what the people did he complained about the separation between he and the father and it's, it's the, the most agonizing thing that we could ever imagine some of the bystanders heard it and said behold he's calling elijah no you misunderstood someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying wait let us see whether elijah will come take him down so he, if he had the moisture if he had the that that extra thing then he wouldn't die of dehydration so quickly and jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom the separation between man and god is what that is, the veil. And so what could have happened at that point was that the judgment of God could have rushed out at that point, and it did. It rushed out, and, and the judgment landed on his son. The only innocent and sinless man that ever lived, dying on that cross. And so the judgment of God, when that curtain is torn, is unleashed. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Amen. He didn't take it like a man. There was something about the way Jesus suffered that pointed beyond 
his physicality, pointed beyond his humanity, and pointed to something else, something greater than that. And, and you know who else did, died that way? Stephen. So when Stephen died, he prayed the same prayer that Jesus prayed, that the Father would forgive them, and that's to be our attitude, and we're supposed to suffer in that same way. We're supposed to suffer in such a way that we know that this is not all there is. That their glory awaits. And that's the way we're intended to live. With, with the understanding that, that this is but prelude to the glory that lies ahead of us. There, there's a promise of an eternity of perfection. That things are exactly the way we always thought they should be. Be no grief, no sighing, no dying, no pain, no sickness, no separation. It, we're supposed to suffer with that knowledge foremost in our minds. James comes through and he's continuing to give him uh, instructions on how to live. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. They, they wait patiently but expectantly because they've done all that they can do. So having done all they could do, then, then their job is to stand. And it's to wait for the early rain and the late rain that comes from the Lord. And, and he says they're patient, and they're patient because they trust, and they know that it's going to happen, and so they wait. They're waiting for what they know and what they trust and what they can rely upon. And he says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Just be firm. Establish your heart. Strengthen your heart is the word that he uses there. So establish it. Make it firm. Make it immovable. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The, James clearly believed that this was going to be a very short wait. He didn't expect people like us 2,000 years later to be waiting still. But we wait the same way. Nothing's different about that. We're expectantly waiting. <clears throat> and as an, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, don't swear either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Don't make your word rest on anything except you. Be that kind of person that, that just does what they say they're going to do. <clears throat> and then he goes on to say, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. It's an important thing, and too often we forget that. I mean, when Will was in the hospital, I anointed him every single day and prayed over him. And I believed, I honestly never doubted that he was going to be healed. As I've said a thousand times, just never thought it'd be this quickly. But, but, I, but I anointed him every single day and prayed over him. I prayed over the drips that went into his body, the, the oxygen that he was getting when he was on the ventilator. I prayed over every single bit of that, that that would be the breath of life. That would be that the life-giving substances would be filled with God's Spirit and that it would give superabundant life. And you know what? I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it actually happen. He's a different person in a bunch of ways. 
um, it, it's an amazing thing. But, and he says the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. I, I don't think that, that God necessarily said, well, John's praying and he believes I'll do that. I think it came first. what came first was the faith. And it was the faith that he gave me. I didn't. It's not something I ginned up or something I walk around with 24-7. No. In this particular case, I had great faith because God gave me a gift of faith for that moment and for that miracle. He He says, if the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. That was one of the other huge things that I was praying over Will that he would literally be a new creation. He struggled with some things before, and, and what I wanted to make sure of is, is that, that God was doing all the work of healing that was possible, that he was healing not only his body and not only his mind, but his heart, and he was making him a new creation. That was the important thing for me. And then it says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James is making an obvious connection here, in some cases at least, between sickness and sin. And why would we not do that? Why would we not think that sickness could be a consequence of sin? Doesn't mean there's always a one-to-one correlation. Doesn't mean that at all. I've seen that applied so badly, it's unbelievable. I don't have any idea when that's true and when it's not true. I never assume that it is. That's between that person and the Lord, and that's what he's saying. Don't speak harshly against one another and judge one another. That, that's something that ha- That's a transaction that happens between you and the Lord. But he says, confess your sins one to another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer believed that was a good plan, too, because he said that um, when, he was, when he had his uh, sort of underground seminary in, in Nazi Germany, he, he had his seminarians confess to one another because he said he saw it himself that he, would, uh, he was confessing all manner of what he considered to be hideous sins to God, but didn't feel any particular remorse about it. But once he ever said any of those things to a brother, th- then the weight of sin became real to him. And so that's why he suggested that, and that's why James says that here. The prayer of a righteous person, he says, has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently it might not rain, and for three and a half years it didn't rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's, it's an important thing for us to be able to, to bring our brothers and sisters back in, in the same way that Jesus came and restored us, like he told about the 99 that he left and went to gather in the one. It's important that we love one another enough to love one another into heaven. And sometimes that means confronting sin. Sometimes it means praying over sickness. But in, in any indication, in any situation, deal gently and lovingly with one another. Have patience and wait expectantly for the Lord.